The reading comes today from the, the book of Esther, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, 9 through 10, 9, 20, 9, chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me. That is my petition, and the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has presumed to do this? Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far enjoining them that they should keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same month, year by year, as the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies. And as the month that they had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. Ah, beloveds, it's so great to be with you this morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, I'm so excited to be here and honored that Bruce asked me uh, if I would come and and you know, help a brother out as he's recovering from COVID. So uh, I, let's, let's nerd out this morning on God's good word. Let us pray. Gracious and glorious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. 
All right, beloveds, I've been known to give a grueling sermon per, per se, get down in the depths of all the things that are wrong with the world, but the sermon, it, it touches on that, but it's a little light, right? Like to talk about it, but it, it's digestible. So let's dig in, shall we? The late Jewish scholar and historian, Abraham Joshua Heschel, once wrote that the Hebrew God is a God who acts on behalf of humans in the construct of time. Beloveds, the book of Esther is a great example of how God makes prudent use of our time. So my suggestion to you, to us all, to myself this morning on the biblical text is as follows. God makes use of our lives and as the author of sustainability itself wastes not a single moment. And when we cry out that we are believed. What Esther reveals is the superpower of relationships. The superpower of relationships is co-creating change, ideally a change that mimics God's love. And if we don't really wanna mimic it, right? We want to embody it. So I'm gonna change my language right now in the text, improv, shout out to Don, that embodies God's love, which inherently values all life by taking advantage of our interdependence. So in preparation for this sermon, reading Esther this time around, a thought occurred to me, and that is the book of Esther teaches us that awareness of where we are in any given moment of time is enough. Awareness is a sufficiency of presence. And so Esther, who is chosen by all of these women across the kingdom's land, to possibly be the queen is picked out and favored. I have to, of course, include the queer reading of this text by the, the eunuchs who look at Esther and like, I think she's got the sauce. I think the king would like that. Let us give her a diet. Let us bathe her in these essential oils that smell like deliciousness in heaven for a year. Let us prep her to, be, to possibly be the queen. And as Esther is being prepped and pampered like a queen to be by these fabulous non-binary non queers of the royal palace, Esther is also learning new customs, observing different ways of being. All the while, her delicious curated diets, her spa days, and her etiquette classes are creating space for her to be who she is to become if she is to save her people and live into her purpose and her meaning in life. All the while she's doing this, not easily, right? She's holding on to the reality that her people might possibly be annihilated by the king's right-hand man, by Haman. <clears throat> Esther is holding a lot. And interestingly enough, in this plot line, the king is also fulfilling his duty of needing, as the crown has taught me, an heir and a spare using a political tactic of kingdom unification by choosing to marry outside of transitional norms, making him accessible and relatable, showing for him the people of his kingdom have royal value by choosing a wife such as Esther from the common folk. Maybe you could call it a modern day Harry without being kicked out. And the queens, they're just, I just want to lift them up again because queer people are in the Bible, non-binary people are in the Bible and they are fabulous. And that culture of being fabulous is clearly ancient. And so finally, Haman, who was just plotting, just being manipulative and nasty, manipulating the lives of others to maintain power, 
is also, you know, in this in this plot. We have three different plots, three different intersecting lives, three different agendas, right? And this intersectional stubborn soft power that Esther has, which is the power to cultivate the diversity of life is beautiful. It's what uh, I consider Professor uh, Brown professor of Black cultural and literary studies, Kevin Quashe, he refers to as the sovereignty of quiet. Esther's power is quiet. It is sovereign. It's a peace and is an inner sanctum that other people cannot touch, even though she is highly visibilized, highly visibilized in trying to court the king. And so God is working through all of them with their different agendas and desires. And in this way, in reading Esther this time around, I noticed that time can be used as a medicine for the miracle of change. Another interesting noticing this time in reading of Esther is that the patient hum of contentment and satisfaction. Now it's not explicitly stated in the text, but I'd have to think that eventually on some of those spa days, it actually felt relaxing. I'd have to think on some of those days of receiving royal food in the courts, like it had to be tasty and enjoyable. On some of those days, getting to know those fabulous queens who are trying to help her out, kept her grounded while she was separated from Mordecai, while she was separated from her people, that there was a persistent, a patient, a stubborn hum of contentment and satisfaction despite the fears and anxieties Esther's, Esther and Mordecai were feeling. And that this contentment and satisfaction in the known and unknown is a lubricant for co-conspiring. That Jesus, like, Jesus, if we notice, didn't really work a single miracle in anger. Like he definitely turned up tables, don't get me wrong. Like he snapped back several times, especially in the book of Mark. But that when he healed people, when he touched them, when he put their hands on them, he was never in a, in a state of anger. And several religious traditions, uh, spiritual practices such as Buddhism, even the law of attraction speaks to this necessity to be content where you are and you're wanting to experience a different life scenario, and Esther wanting to experience life, not genocide, right? And taking advantage of the inevitability of change, Esther embodies the phrase, this too shall pass, not knowing, but believing and trusting that it will pass in her favor. Esther, out of necessity, makes use of her lot and remains focused on marriage and cultivating a relationship with the king because that, that relationship with the king, that interconnectedness, that is her ticket to life and freedom and her people's ticket to life and freedom. So she is steadfast. And life in the manner of time, Esther has taught me, is an unfolding process. Esther reminds me to have fun where you can, and that God gives encouragement in the sweet, small things of life, like oiled baths and the royal diets that I keep talking about. And while time passes, Esther is also learning strategy. She is learning culture. She's building relationships of this king whose favor she needs to curry for a multiplicity of reasons, also just the selfishness of being able to thrive and survive and exist in a world. Esther, through time, at a time where anxiety is high within her, through time, is able to uh, become right-sized for the job and purpose she is meant to fulfill. 
You know, there's a saying, y'all probably know this saying, don't let them steal your joy. Joy and happiness in the face of genocide. Joy and happiness in the face of the unknown, in the face of our borders, in the face of our climate. Joy and happiness seems antithetical, but I guarantee, I guarantee, try it. It is an antidote. Check my happiness. It doesn't make any sense, but it works. And we know that genocide in its fast and slow form uh, is, hits all of us in our cultures. Gentrification, all of us, you know, we experience genocide in multiple ways. And Esther has also taught me that unbalanced power that devalues life is the direct and indirect misuse of power that generates death and is a gross understanding or misunderstanding rather of meaning, purpose, and worth. And what's frustrating for me, and I'm quite confident, I know y'all well enough that I'm not alone in this shared frustration, is that change is as simple as making intentional small decisions every day, right? Like I think sometimes, I know I've, I fall guilty of this. Sometimes we think we need something grand to make a change. You know, it's just these small little decisions. Like, you know, maybe Haman needed a few hugs in his early childhood. What, what could that have done? Maybe Haman could have worked something out, you know? Uh, talked about his feelings. <laughs> small changes of vulnerability uh, maybe could have could have changed a lot, but that's, Haman wasn't there, right? Haman, Haman wasn't at that place. So Esther had work to do. And Haman is a archetype, uh, archetypal example of how far people are willing to go for power, how disconnected they can be from God, right? And that the cost of lives of entire people groups of the planet are of no consequence to his value. He is unable to see the connection between his life and the life of the Jewish people. He's unable to see his connection between his life and the interconnectedness of the entire kingdom of which he is to, he's assigned to help the king uh, rule. During my time this year at Stanford University serving as a chaplain fellow, I'm studying spiritual and emotional distress and moral injury in STEM students. And the dominant framework that I use of calibrating healthy relationship that lives into the second commandment, which y'all know I love so much, has been learning about native ways of being and how that native spirituality uh, is spiritually and emotionally relevant and needed for us today. And so I've been doing research on California. This is an awesome book. I'm just gonna flat out nerd out. Tending the Wild by, uh, M. Cat Anderson, highly recommend it. It's very thick, but it's, it's, it's delicious. Check it out. California has been stewarded and cultivated for a millennia, right? Relationships and interconnectedness with the land instead of dominion. And when settlers first appeared on the land of California, they were surprised at the diversity that they encountered. There are journal uh, entries of Settlers looking at the hills and seeing tule elk as far as the eye can see to where it looked like the hills themselves were moving. Of fishermen going into the ocean and what actually was not a struggle to catch a fish. It was almost like it was lazy. It was so casual because that's the abundance of how much fish and biodiversity was in the water. So California's cultural diversity matched 
its biodiversity. It contained the most diverse native cultural groups out of any other state in the United States or country of comparable geographic size from the Arctic to the top of South America. And it had been populated for at least 12,000 years before European settlement began. And it was so densely populated upon European arrival that archive of settler journal after settler journal were they were in awe at the biodiversity and abundance that the land had and yet they could not understand and desperately failed to embody largely due to a poor dominant christian theology bolstered by the doctrine of discovery a curiosity of how such abundance was possible how such value was created without repeating the dominant systems of their homeland whose indigeneity had already been devalued and wiped out in a distortion of progress, right? We all come from indigenous peoples. And they, and we as a society, good old fashioned capital, capitalism, fail to recognize that it was the culture of Native's relationship with one another and the land that created this biodiversity for all life. That permaculture was how they were growing their food with the land. Not a need to farm in the way that we're still taught today, that tribe territories span from east to west with the understanding that migration is natural for most living things and human are no, humans are no different. So tribes migrated with the resources of the seasons, taking just enough, saying a prayer, giving an offering. And power was not the aim. And the values of understanding and of wealth were vastly different than settler ideas. Wealth was literally the, the wealth of the land, the wealth of one another that all were able to eat and be well in all, not just human lives. Even humanity itself was not centered in native, in native concepts of being. Humans were and are a part of a system and their value is no less than the rest of God's good creation. Take for example, if a perennial plant was used for more than one purpose, then harvesting, then the harvesting of the same plant took place different times during the year without destroying the plants and the multiplicity of harvests. There was a firm understanding of take only what you need keeping in mind the seven generations before you and what will be needed for seven generations after you. To not practice this native cultural custom that was brought across all cultures, all tribes, is what we as Christians would define as sin, right? And so Native Americans understood there is more power in a mindset of collective consciousness that values all life. And furthermore, their existence and relationship with the land is proof that abundance, enough, diversity in all its forms is not a theoretic utopia, which we hear all the time in our Western culture, but it is actually possible. Like they made it possible for a millennia, y'all. They did it. And I think we could do it too. I'm not opposed. What's the harm in trying, right? I got excited and lost my place. <laughs> Abundance is all around and there are just some things we should not touch. Such is the lesson I believe from the book of Genesis of picking from the, free, the, the fruit of the tree of life, from the knowledge of good and evil, that there are some things, there are some balances that God has created in the world and we take more than our fair share. Things go haywire, chaos ensues. And then we're banished from the land. We've kind of banished ourselves from our planet in a way, haven't we? We're trying to go to Mars. It looks like it's going to be a hot mess in a long time. 
Haman is an example of the seduction of power and how it's always the song of a siren. And because of this, Haman is adjacent to death. This kind of understanding of power is always paired with death. Jesus and the story of Esther teach intentional relationships are practical salvation, and it requires awareness, it requires time, and it requires a reframe of being in relationship. And what stopped Haman's plans was a series of relationships, all done through awareness, time, and reframing. The lives of multiple people, all with intersectional identities, different intentions, all divinely co-creating on the behalf of the benefit of one another. Selfish, selfish means for a certain degree, but nonetheless, God is at work knowing all three of them, Esther, Haman, the king, you know, four will include the eunuchs, five will include Mordecai, all had different agendas more or less, but God still used them. God is at work with whatever path y'all are taking, we're taking. And so, in additionally, in additionally, additionally, as a chaplain at Stanford, I'm researching the relationship between the self and the environment as an indicator of being able to cultivate spiritual and emotional well-being. And a dear friend of mine, a Peruvian elder who I visit almost every Friday in her art gallery in San Jose, has this beautiful space filled with indigenous art and stories, and told me plainly a few weeks ago, Wes is excited, that Jesus is indigenous. And at first my theologically trained mind jumped right to the historical critical method with a progressive lens, thinking about Jesus as a Palestinian Jewish man, born a refugee, living in occupied Roman territory. And instead I realized what she meant was Jesus's constant relational state. His way of being was an indigenous way. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your body and mind and love your neighbor as you love yourself. This fulfills the law and the teachings of all of the prophets. The eunuchs, Esther, Jesus, Mordecai, the king, in their own ways came to the understanding or rather the embodiment of the power of an indigenous way of relating. A power of the importance of interconnectedness, of listening to people right? The king listened. I mean, it took him a few times and a few drinks, <laughs> but he's able to listen to Esther because he cared about her as a wife. He cared about her as a person. And I wonder what if we listen to the land? What if we listen to each other and make these small changes every day? And what if we're kinder to ourselves and remind ourselves that we all come from indigenous peoples, that we all have stories of being wiped out in one way, shape, or another, and that, you know, this planet, we really are on this rock and space together, right? We're on this, this island of life. And so my prayer for us today, what Esther has taught me, is let's be an indigenous relationship with one another. Not in the co-opty, you know, gross little progressive Bay Area situation, but <laughs> let's... <laughs> Let's be an authentic relationship, knowing our interdependence, knowing our interconnectedness and embody a Christianity that moves towards that. Because I think we're all trying to learn that Christianity again, that Christianity that we lost long before we were ever a notion. May it be so. 
so that we can celebrate. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and glorious God, may the words from the sermon, may just ourselves being collected and gathered here in participation of worship, may that fill our hearts. May we be encouraged in the midst of so much overwhelm in the world. And may we know that little by little, step by step through time, you work with us and through us so that we may continue to be a light in the world, a light to each other, and a love, an unconditional love for ourselves and all of your creation. Amen.